pray. God, there are a lot of hurting people here today. And a lot of people maybe who aren't, and that's, that's complicated too. Thank you that you bring us together. Lord, help us to walk well with each other. Uh, Lord, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to grieve with those who grieve. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to declare what, what we just tried to sing. You are worthy, Lord Jesus, of all blessing, glory, and honor. You are worthy of it all. And even on the dark days, when creation is groaning, it is. A new creation is coming. That's true, too. Lord, so help us to see that. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us minister to us now with a passage that doesn't relate to any of that, and yet this is what you have for us today. Lord, we thank you. You know what we need. Lord, so speak to us and encourage us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sorry about that. I was talking to somebody earlier this week, and emotions are one of those things where there's like no dial. I wish there was a dial, but we're not robots, and sometimes that happens. And uh, if ever you find yourself, and it's a Sunday, and you think, I don't know if I can go to church, I'm not sure if I can even keep my composure, um, please know that we we want you here. And, uh, you don't have to keep your composure. Uh, we love each other. We're the family of God, and um, we're glad you're here. And we're turning to Acts 20. And as I said, it's not necessarily related to any of the heaviness I'm alluding to, um, but this is what's next for us. In fact, as I was studying ahead for this sermon, and I try to, I'll read ahead, and then I'll put like a potential title uh, for each coming sermon. And you know, you get a sense of what we're going to be talking about, and Last week, you know, the riot in Ephesus, and I'm thinking, Brother Gary, like, this is, boom, this is going to hit. Like, this is an exciting passage. And then I turned to this, this one, and I, I wrote as the headle, Paul's travel log. And I thought, I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure what we're going to say. Um, but I know that it's here for a reason, and so we're going to look to it, and I'm studying, and I actually confessed to some of the guys I spend uh, my time with during the week. Um, I had read the text, and then I read commentaries and I, I had finished my final commentary and I, I thought I still don't have a, the penny hasn't dropped yet. It hasn't clicked as to what, what we're to make of this passage. I mean, there's one detail that you'll notice as we read that jumps out and it'd be easy maybe to emphasize that one detail, but there's more. So why, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is Luke including this in our Bibles? Why do we have this snapshot of Paul's schedule? And as I thought about that, and I was sitting in my office, and it was Tuesday about 1 p.m., which I write on Tuesday, so that's late in the process, and I've got a bunch of words on a page, but not much of a sermon, and I'm thinking, why do we have Paul's schedule? What do we make of this? And then I thought, maybe I'll ask a question. Imagine for a moment, we took your schedule, and we put it up on this screen behind us, and we just showed everybody in the room how you spent every minute of your week this week. I imagine... I'm not going to do that, by the way, but I imagine you wouldn't love that invasion of your privacy because as we look at the way that you use every minute of your week, we come to learn a great deal about you, don't we? We see the things you prioritize. We see the things you don't prioritize, the things you neglect. We see all that. It really, when you look at somebody's schedule, you're, you're kind of getting a snapshot of that person's heart. And I thought, 
I suspect that that is why this passage is here. As we look at the Apostle Paul's travel log, as we look at his schedule, we do get a glimpse into his heart. And so that being said, look with me now to Acts chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 to 16. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This is the word of the Lord. And if I mispronounce some of those names, so would you. So this is, a, as a guy with a mild lisp, this list is fear-inducing. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, there is a detail in this story that jumps off the page, or you could say falls off the page. This poor young man named Eutychus, and he's sitting up in the room, and he's listening to Paul's sermon, and he's doing his very best, but it's, uh, it's past midnight. And the text says, and Paul goes on, and he keeps going. And Eutychus drifts to sleep and he falls out of the window and he dies. And then Paul brings him back to life. Now that, that is a, a very arresting detail. Uh, as I looked at the text, I thought, I know that some of you are gonna be sitting there thinking, he ought to preach a sermon about how long sermons can actually kill people. And uh, I wanted to preach a sermon that if you don't pay attention, actually, you might die. And, uh, and to be fair, after Paul brings him back to life, God brings him back to life through Paul. Paul starts preaching again, so I think there's more textual evidence for my sermon than for your proposed sermon, but actually, if, if we were to zoom in on that one detail and preach a sermon about Eutychus, the real lesson of this story is, again, that the Apostle Paul's apostleship is being validated. This is, he's recreating here a miracle, the miracle of Elijah, miracle of Elisha, of Jesus, of Peter. Luke's including this because it's, it's just more evidence that here is Paul who is speaking with the authority of Christ himself, validated as an apostle. Now, 
we could preach that sermon, but we have, we've kind of preached that sermon quite a few times over the last few weeks. And so today what I'd like to do is, is I'd like to zoom up from the one arresting detail and look at this text as a whole. Because it's all here for a reason. All those names that I can't pronounce are here for a reason. Those various cities, communities that were visited, they're here for a reason. So why is this here? What are we meant to see? Luke is providing us here with a glimpse into Paul's schedule, Paul's life. And in doing so, he is revealing the priorities of a faithful apostle and disciple maker and follower of Christ. So let's look at this passage and ask very simply, what did Paul prioritize? Now, admittedly, this sermon is going to be very simple, three points, and also it's going to be very application heavy, okay? And so actually, before I go any further, if I could jump off what I've prepared, realize that the reason that Paul prioritized these things, the reason he lived this life this way is because of Paul's view of Christ, Right, Paul lived this way because he's the same man who wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's Romans 8.1. Paul, Paul lived this way because he was, he was basking in the grace of God in Christ for him. So he wasn't living this way to try and earn God's love. He was living this way as a response to grace. And so if you're here today and you don't have a, a view of grace, then you could be tempted to hear this as like moralism. As, you know, do better, shame on you. That's not what I want you to hear. That's not what Paul would have you hear. Okay, so this is a life fueled by grace. So what did Paul prioritize fueled by grace? Now, quick qualifier. Paul was an apostle, and you and I are not apostles. He was called to lay the foundation of the church. The church is built on this foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. He was called to write the word of God for us. Now, we're not, to be clear. We don't build the foundation. We build upon the foundation. That's an important distinction. But that doesn't mean that we read these stories disengaged as if there's nothing for us to learn and apply. Because before Paul was an apostle, he was also a Christian. A Christian who was called to obey the great commission that Christ gave to all of us which means that there's going to be a great deal of overlap with the way that Paul lived and the way that we are called to live. He received the same fundamental marching orders that we received. So, as we look at this travel log, this schedule, what did Paul prioritize? First and foremost, I want you to see that he prioritized the pursuit of the Great Commission. And if you're here for the first time and you don't know what that means, let me just explain. The Great Commission was Jesus marching orders to his church. After he died on the cross and then rose from the grave three days later, he ascended to heaven. But before he ascended to heaven, he gathered together his people, his disciples, and he gave them this command. He said in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's what we call the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all these commanded. That's the marching order of every Christian. And Paul was a Christian, and so too are we if you're in Christ. Now Paul, as we look at this schedule and as we look at his life, was laser-focused on this assignment, making disciples of the nations to the glory of God was the, was the 
overarching pursuit of Paul's life and it dictated all the other decisions that he made. Now as we look at this travel log, if we want to understand it, we need to take a step back and look at chapter 19. Our brother Gary alluded to this last week. 19 verse 21, Paul's still in Ephesus. The riot hasn't yet happened, but we read in verse 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul, while he's in Ephesus, has this sense of the spirit's drawing, and he is resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem to Rome. Okay, he's, he's marching onward, which is interesting because ministry in Asia was booming. Like, things, were, things were happening where Paul was. If you look at verse 10 of chapter 19, we read this, being Paul's ministry, continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this is the Roman province of Asia, okay? And in this Roman province of Asia, through Paul's ministry and through the disciples he's making, everyone was hearing the gospel. And not only were they hearing it, they were responding to it. People were repenting of their sins en masse. Remember the story when they took their books of magic and burned them in the streets? I mean, the riot breaks out in Ephesus because the whole economy is transformed because people's lives are changing. Asia is being flipped upside down and Paul's right at the very heart of it and he's watching this and if you were at the heart of it, I suspect you'd probably want to stay. I mean, you imagine if Aurelia, I mean, here we are, we're in this gym and there's a hundred something of us here. Imagine, you know, this city, every church in this city has got like overflow seating and people are, are, are weeping and, and professing Christ and going out in the streets and telling everybody and the whole, the whole city is just in an uproar because the gospel's changing lives. If that was happening, I suspect you'd want to stay, right? You'd want to enjoy that and, and soak all of that in. In fact, when there was that revival in the States, what's... A lot of people did that. They're like hopped in the car and they said, I just got to get there just to be in that. And here the Holy Spirit is taking Paul and he's saying, actually, I'm going to send you out of that. I'm sending you out of that because you have a further assignment. Out of this great awakening. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul explains why he was being called out. He says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. He goes on to say a few verses later, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing, these are the Romans, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul's saying that the gospel has gone forth in this region, but there are people in Spain who have not heard about Jesus, so I've got to go. The Holy Spirit is sending me, sending me to Jerusalem and from there to Rome, and then he tells the Romans, and I'm expecting you to send me to Spain. Kind of like what Antioch did in his first missionary journey. He's like, you're going to become my new hub, and you are going to send me on mission out to Spain because there's a gospel they need to hear. And I just want to pause and reflect on this detail. Right now, again, it probably feels a little bit far removed. It's like, okay, so Paul had his life and he did his things. Now just think about this. Here's a man who is leaving behind his comfort, leaving behind revival, 
leaving behind his, his friends, his brothers and sisters in Christ that he loves, leaving behind this world that he now knows, and going to a, a new assignment. He doesn't know what, what's in store for him. In fact, he, he knows a bit of what's in store for him, and what's been revealed is that it's going to be hard. That's all he knows. It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. There's going to be suffering. And yet he goes. And again, I know Paul's an apostle. And so we say, well, that, yeah, Paul's an apostle, right? So he, he has a different assignment than I have. And that's true. God, I don't suspect anyone's calling anyone in this room to go to Jerusalem, then on to Rome, and then into Spain. I don't imagine that's any of our specific marching orders. But isn't it true that Paul's foundational marching orders, that great commission, are the same orders that you and I have? Go make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. That's, that's what's driving Paul. And lest we distance ourselves from it, those are the same orders that we've received. And so as we consider Paul's example for us here and the priorities in his life, I think it's worth asking, is the Holy Spirit compelling some of us this morning to get out of this rut that we're in? I suspect that he is. Is he, is he moving us to take seriously this great commission assignment that we have been given to, to make disciples? And you wonder, well, where do I begin? Boy, if he's put children in your house, you start there. To take seriously this assignment and make disciples. If he's put you know, people in your, your workplace that don't know Jesus, you start there. To open your mouth and share the hope that you have. I've, I shared this a few weeks ago, but let me just say it again in case you missed it. it. Within this room, there are gonna be men and women who don't know Jesus, and they're here, and they're looking, and they're asking questions. Start there. Invite them over for lunch and say, bring those questions and an appetite. We're gonna do this. But he, maybe, perhaps, the Spirit right now is compelling some of us to move this priority from the back burner to the front burner, because it is at front and center for the Apostle Paul as it should be for all followers of Jesus. The Spirit called Paul to leave success, revival, familiarity to bring the gospel to people who hadn't heard it. I mean, here's a, here's a crazy, I, you know, I dare we even ask this, is the Holy Spirit perhaps compelling someone here to leave Canada? Like to, to leave our comfort altogether, to go to a place where it is not gospel saturated, where there aren't churches on all the corners he might be. Are we willing to, to listen? Are we willing to respond as Paul responded and say, okay, I'm going? See, when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, that is when we become Christians, when we surrender our life to him and go through the waters of baptism, we are declaring that our lives are his. We're declaring that where he tells us to go, we will go. If he tells us to jump, we'll jump. If he tells us to stay, we'll stay. But we're saying that our life is now his. That's why, if you've ever watched the baptism here, the third question we ask every candidate is we say, are you prepared to follow Jesus wherever he may lead you, no matter the cost? Because to be a Christian is to say a resounding yes and amen. Yes, I am. That's what it means to take up my cross. My life is his. The old me died on that cross. The new me is in Christ, and I go where he tells me to go. That's what it means, brothers and sisters. And sometimes I, we forget that, don't we? But that's what it means. And so today, as we consider this text, can I just, 
maybe, maybe we have adopted a, a posture that is unmovable. A posture that is so fixated on our own plans that we're not listening. Let's be, a, let's be people who listen. Paul was a person who listened. God moved him and used him mightily. That's the first lesson we learn as we look at his travel log. The second lesson is this. In this text, we see that Paul prioritized the preservation of unity in the church. In order for us to see this detail, we need to do a little bit of homework. So one of the things that you ought to know about this passage, this travel log, is that it was during this trip that Paul wrote his letter to the Romans and the letter that we know as 2 Corinthians. And so that just, if you like making little notes in your Bible, you're welcome to do that. You know, that he wrote those letters on this trip. And maybe you're asking the question, well, why does that matter? Who cares? Well, that matters because if you want to know what Paul was thinking about during this little stretch of his, his mission, you can read those letters and you get a window into his, his soul, right? What was, he, what was he doing? What was motivating him? And when we look at Romans and 2 Corinthians, we learn a really important detail about why the Spirit was drawing him to Jerusalem, then on to Rome and Spain. Romans 15, for example, he's writing now to Rome, and he tells them this. You can imagine him just, he just got off the boat. He's with one of those guys whose name I can't announce, and he's, he's writing, pronounced, he's writing his letter. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why? Bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So again, if you're here for the first time, maybe the word Gentile is one that we don't throw around often in our culture. Gentile means not a Jew, right? That's what it means. So Paul's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm, I've collected an offering from these places. These are Gentile, non-Jewish places, these churches. And I'm bringing it to this church in Jerusalem filled with, filled with Jewish Christians. And it's right that I do so because the gospel has launched out of Jerusalem and it only makes sense that as they're blessing these places, that these places can now bless them in return with this financial gift. We see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 8. I won't read it to you, but you could go home and do that homework yourself. You read 2 Corinthians 8 and you get a glimpse into Paul's heart for this Jerusalem offering. The people in Jerusalem had fallen upon hard times. The church was struggling. And Paul, in his spirit-led, brilliant leadership, recognized this as an opportunity. That financial need in Jerusalem presents an opportunity to bind these churches together, this Jewish Christian church and this non-Jewish Christian church. Because, I don't know if you remember, but the whole first half of the book of Acts is devoted to explaining why this was so complicated Unity was not a word that you would use to describe this relationship. Jews did not like Gentiles. Gentiles were unclean. Gentiles were not descendants of Abraham. Gentiles were not a part of the family of God. And so when the gospel comes and, and it proclaims that, no, we're coming together in Christ, well, that was, that was a really tough pill to swallow. And it was, there was a lot of fracture, a lot of division. So, for example, we read something like Galatians 3.28 which says, Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We read that today and we go, yeah, duh, amen, that's beautiful, we know this. Realize when that was written, in that moment in history, in the early church, nobody else was reading this and saying, duh, they were reading this and saying, what? You're kidding. Those, all those distinctives, those distinctives that are like the most important thing about us, those have been erased in Christ, we've, are, really? And Paul says, really? And so the church is trying to wrap their head around this, they're trying to wrap their heart around this, and this new relationship is fresh and it is fragile, and so when Paul sees this need in Jerusalem, he sees an opportunity to try and tie these churches together in love. It's okay, all right, they weren't so sure if they could trust these non-Jewish Christians, well let's do this, and let's get these guys loving each other and walking together. And not only did he bring the offering, the money, but he also brought people. Let me read this list again, verse four to five. Sopatar the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So why do we have this list of names in the text? Are these just Paul's buddies going on a trip with him? No, they're not. One commentator explains, most scholars interpret the names in the list in terms of representatives of the churches that contributed to the collection Paul had organized for the church in Jerusalem. So Paul went to these churches and he took up an offering for Jerusalem, but he didn't just take up an offering, he took a person. Now why would he do that? Two two reasons, pretty clear. The first reason is so that this offering that you gave, we're gonna make sure it actually gets to the person that you're sending it to, right? He's just being above reproach. Right? We want to make sure that when I get there, nobody in Jerusalem is wondering if some of the offering made it into my pockets. And I want to make sure that nobody here in Corinth is wondering if I'm actually going to Jerusalem or if I'm just going to go retire in Rome. Right? So there's accountability, and that's wise. Do the right thing the right way. But there's a second piece that, that's important too. And that's Paul is bringing the, the people who can bring their greetings, bring their love from their congregations that they represent to the church in Jerusalem. And just, we don't think about this because we live in an age of planes, trains, and automobiles, but they traveled a really long way, and that was a big deal for people who don't have cars. So think about uh, what Sopater, the Berean. Do you know he traveled over 800 miles to bring this offering? We're talking about months of travel. Months of travel, expensive travel. He's got to eat that whole way, lodging. And on top of that, he's not able to work for that whole stretch. He's got a family back home waiting for him. This was tremendously costly for the church to send, for Sopatar himself, for Paul to make this request. This is huge. Why would he do this? Because it's worth the cost to bind this gathering together, to bind these believers together, to overcome all of this hostility. It's worth the cost for unity. So just reflect on that. Think about what great lengths Paul was willing to go to in order to preserve unity in the church. And and some people say, well, the early church didn't face the kind of disagreements that we face today. I'll say, I don't know that you can say that if you've read the New Testament. The early church faced massive disagreements. You read his letter to the Corinthians and you see he's got like this hyper-charismatic battles about gifts and this and that and then you read his letter to the Galatians and you've got these legalists and trying to Judaize everyone and trying to put it all together and you've got people who are coming to Christ from 
these non-Jewish places, they're like worshiping idols and they had books of magic on their shelf. And then you've got Jews who are coming to Christ who had grown up hating Gentiles and are trying to overcome that barrier. Like this is massively complicated. It's hard to bind people together. It's hard for people like that to walk together. And we see little glimpses of it even in our own congregation. Right, because we're not always perfectly like-minded on every theological issue, but Paul's binding them together in the gospel of Jesus Christ, even as they're working through their disagreements. And when he writes to the Romans, I don't have this on the screen, but when he writes to the Romans, Romans 14 talks about how, hey, you guys don't agree on everything. Some of these guys have got a weak conscience. They can't eat certain foods that you're comfortable eating. Just be gracious with you. Some of these guys observe certain days as more holy than other days, and they conduct themselves differently. You need to just love one another and be patient. So Paul's not saying, like, we're going to agree entirely on every single minutia of our theology. No, he's binding them together in the gospel, and he's saying, we're going to make this work. And I wonder if that same priority is evidenced in the North American church today. I, I, wouldn't, I don't always see it. It seems to me that for all of our claims of being biblical, we couldn't be further from this biblical example. Forget traveling 800 miles for unity. Many of us can't even surrender our musical preferences for the sake of unity. Traveling 800 miles for unity, many of us can't even pick up the phone to call a Christian we disagree with for the sake of unity. And we should be convicted as we look at this example. That should change. That's sin. That's not right. Paul prioritized unity in the church because Jesus prayed for unity in the church. Remember when Jesus prayed for us? Remember what he prayed? John 17. He's praying and he's, so first he's he's like looking at the disciples as he's praying. I do not ask for these only, those are his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. What does he ask for us? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Paul understood this and he was shaped by this and he pursued this because the unity of the church was a priority in Paul's life. May it be a priority in our lives as well. Third and finally, we see one last priority in this passage and that is the nurturing of new believers. Paul prioritized that the nurturing of new believers. And as I read this, I found this one just warmed, warmed my heart because Paul has this incredible balance of pushing forward on mission but, but never leaving someone behind, right? So he doesn't just plant a new church and then say, all right, onwards and upwards, I gotta add to my resume. No, as he's planting new churches and, and leading people to Christ, He's taking the time to disciple them and equip them and teach them everything they need to know. And then he goes. And then he comes back and he equips them some more. And then he goes again. And then he writes them a letter. Like, he is, he is committed to nurturing these new believers. And if you were even just to look at a map, you know, this is one of the tasks that I don't love doing as much in my study. Geography is not something that excites me and never did. But just in, in preparation for the sermon, you, you pull out the map, and okay, he's trying to get from here to Jerusalem. And it's just interesting, you know, because he, he's driven by the Great Commission. He needs to get to Jerusalem. But as you look at his travel log, he's like going circling around and doing some of this, and then back there and around here. And this is not the quickest way to get there. And we know from his letters that his heart is to get there soon because he's got work to do. But he takes this long way around. Why? To nurture the new believers to visit all of these churches that he's planted, to build them up in their faith. 
to walk alongside them, answer their questions, give them their final instructions before he moves on. I love that about Paul. And I believe the reason why we have this story, you know, in Troas, where Eutychus falls out the window. I believe the reason that we have this story is not just because of the Eutychus miracle. Though, as I said, we, we have that miracle for a reason. Luke, is, he sees an opportunity to remind us once again of this apostolic authority. Like, look, this, Jesus is ministering in and through Paul, of course. But I think the reason why we have that story is because Luke wants us to see a snapshot of what was happening when Paul was visiting all these different churches. If you look back at verse 2 of chapter 20, it says, When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So what does it look like when Paul's giving much encouragement to all these churches? It looks like this episode we see in Troas. Just like one glimpse. And again, so we could look at the Eutychus detail, but look at the other details in the story too. The ones that we'd be tempted to rush past. Like verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, pause there, uh, when we were gathered, the we language, we've mentioned this before, it's picked back up because Luke, the author of Acts, he was with Paul in this episode, so now we language. So Luke's, it's probably why he's talking about the lamps and the room and everything. Like, he's like, I was there. He's remembering these details vividly. Anyways, first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So here we see Paul visiting the church, and he's joining them for their corporate worship. And we see he's breaking bread with them, which in Acts is language that alludes to the sharing of a meal and also the sharing of the Lord's Supper. The two went hand in hand, it seems, in the New Testament church. And then he's opening up the word of God, and he's teaching them, and he's, he's spending time with them late into the night. In fact, after Eutychus falls out of the window and dies, and Paul by God's grace, brings him back to life. What does the church do? Look at verse 11. It says, And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. Until daybreak. You know, that's one of those details you don't notice the first time through. Paul pulls an all-nighter with the church in Troas. Like all through the night, he's preaching and teaching and, and equipping and speaking and He's got a long travel the next day. He's got a big journey ahead of him. But he skips the night of sleep so that he can equip these believers because he loves them. And as I pastor this congregation, I feel challenged and quickened by that example. Is this love in me? Am I willing to pour myself out for you or for new believers who have questions and would keep me from, from home for the night? Am I willing to just pour myself out and give what I have? I feel challenged by that. I hope, I hope that that grows in me. But lest you think, oh, I'm glad pastor got a lesson. How do you feel this as parents? For those of you who are parents in the room, how often do we make the excuse, well, I'm just too tired to pray with the kids tonight. I'm just too tired to open the Bible and teach them tonight. I'm just too tired to engage with them tonight. I'm too tired. I need me time. I need to stare at my phone and escape and ignore them and nod my head as they talk in my ear time. I need to check out. Maybe you're feeling a bit convicted too. Or if you don't have kids, maybe you just think about your friends and those people in your life that you could be investing in, but, and yet it's just so hard to carve out the time, to, to cut out things in your life that would be really filling for you to instead go and invest in someone that might be a bit draining for you. But here as we look at this story, we see just this love, this love for these new believers, the little ones, 
Jesus called us to love. Look at the undivided attention. I am positive that when Luke wrote this, he wasn't thinking about this pastoral application. But I would argue one of the applications here is let's be the kind of people who put the phone away and give people our focus and our time. Give it to our kids. Give it to our spouses. Give it to our coworkers. Give it to the people we're with. Undivided attention. Paul, Paul is all there for them while he's there. He's I'm going to give you everything I've got. I want to be people like that. I want to be a leader like that personally. I want us to be a church like that in our homes, in our community. That we'd be known for pouring ourselves out to build others up. So just to put feet on that, just imagine with me for a moment that here in this congregation, that this priority just took hold of our hearts such that, such that every new believer in this congregation had not one, not two, but like three, four Christians who were pouring into their life, three, four Christians who were answering questions and, and doing life and sharing meals and pointing to resources and praying and just, just spending intentional time together. Imagine the exponential growth that we would see in the lives of people if every new believer had that advantage of Christians investing in them. And as I challenge that, I also want to encourage you because some of these maybe have landed a bit like a rebuke. Oh, can I just tell you today, I see a lot of this here already. I do. And please be encouraged by that. You, can't, you don't program it. it. It's the kind of thing that's happening behind the scenes. But if I could just pull some of it out, I see senior Christians taking teenagers out for lunch to talk to them about life. Thank you for doing that. Like, what a beautiful ministry. I see teenagers investing in the spiritual life of my nine-year-old son, spending time with him. Thank you. That's beautiful. I see people who are taking along new believers and are picking them up and are driving them to church and are driving them to Bible study and driving them to prayer group and driving them out for coffee to talk. And, and that's a beautiful thing, right? Because we, we need each other. And every new believer, they need somebody in their life. That's what it looks like to make disciples. And, and again, some of you are maybe here and you're thinking, well, I can't, what am I supposed to do? What do I know? I don't know anything. I'm, I, feel like I, know, I feel like when I talk to my kids about the Bible, they know more than me. And some of you legitimately feel that, I, and I get it. But can I just, can I encourage you today? It's not complicated. Take what you know and just share that. Just share that. Come alongside somebody and give them everything that you've got so that they in turn can give that to someone else. That's it. Carve out time in your life to be with people, particularly new believers who need those people in their life. Sometimes we assume that when somebody comes to Christ, they're gonna be surrounded by people who are, who are helping them to apply the truth to their lives, who are, who are pointing out when things don't comply with what God has taught us. And the reality is for many of them, they don't have that at all. They have like this one little window where they we hear the word preached and, and they're like, oh, okay, I get it. And then they go out into the world. They need somebody. Let us be those somebodies because all of us are called to it. Go and make disciples. So to ask the probing question, who are you building up? If, just imagine if we stopped and we went around the room. We won't. Imagine if we stopped and we went around the room and just pointed at you and said, who are you building up? Like, who are you building up? Who are you building up? Who, who is it? Who are you investing in? pouring yourself out for. 
We see that in Paul's life. We look at his schedule and we learn not everything that we could know about Paul, but we do see a glimpse into his priorities. He prioritized the pursuit of the Great Commission. God deserves the praises of the peoples, of the nations. May the peoples praise you. We sang that. Let the nations be glad. Paul believed that and it shaped his life. He prioritized the unity of the church. Paul understood that God's desire for his people was that they would be united under Christ. And so he worked hard and he paid the price to see that lived out. And Paul prioritized the nurturing of new believers. He wanted the church to stretch wide, but he was equally concerned that the church would grow deep. And he gave all that he had to help make that happen, humanly speaking. Only God can do it, of course. So at the beginning of this sermon, and we're coming to a close, at the beginning of this sermon, I asked you how you would feel if we took your personal calendar and plopped it up on that screen for everybody to see. And I told you, we're not gonna do that. We're not. Surprise, no, I'm kidding. We're not. But can I just tell you, a day is coming when we'll stand before the king, King Jesus, and then the calendar will be up on the screen. Right? It'll be laid bare. And in the same way that we've been walking through Paul's calendar and we've been parsing out the priorities that shaped his life, in the same way, King Jesus will be looking at our lives and he'll be pulling out and parsing the priorities that shaped our lives. What will he see? What does your calendar say about your priorities? And further, if maybe you're feeling a little bit of conviction there, then I just want to challenge you here positively. What needs to change in your calendar that it would communicate what you want it to communicate about your priorities? Like, what is your life for? What's it about And what needs to change? Before you can say yes to the right things, you need to go back and you need to say no to some of the wrong things or the less right things. And isn't that the challenge? So just to throw out some examples, just as as we think through this, maybe it's time to say no to seven late nights of Netflix so that you can start saying yes to waking up a bit earlier praying for your kids or praying for your coworkers, praying for our missions partners praying for evangelistic opportunities in your neighborhood on your street maybe it's time to start saying no to four nights out for kids sports so that you can say yes to sitting down with your family at the dinner table and opening the word of God and talking about it together just to be an equal offender maybe it's time for you to say no to four programmed activities from the church through the week so that you can say yes to inviting your neighbors into your home and and sharing the gospel with them. The the church is capable of of overfilling your calendar too, and we're trying not to do that. But sometimes we we can fill our lives up with things that even seem like good things, but we wind up with just feed, 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 and we look down one day and we're just like these bloated Christians who just feed our face all day long and do nothing with it. I don't like how that illustration was so easy to uh, feel conviction. Our calendars tell a story. Paul's calendar told a story. So does mine, so does yours. Let today be the day when we resolve to use our calendars, that is to surrender our lives to tell his story. Ultimately, that is the only story that matters. And so to that end, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
Uh, I, we love you, God. And as I pray, I want to loop back around to what we noted earlier, which is that um, our lives don't change unless we see you. At least they don't change the way that we want them to. Because your desire is not that we would become a group of legalistic, moralistic people comparing calendars and seeing who has better priorities. God, your desire is that we would see you and know you and love you and in doing that, everything else will fall into place. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All these things will be added. The Apostle Paul, he lived the way that he lived because he loved who he loved. I pray that we would love you more than anything. And Lord, we need to see you. We want to we wanna love who you are, not who we imagine you to be. God, would you open your word for us as we, not just in our mornings together, but Lord, every time we return as your people and open your word, God, would you speak to us and shape us and by your Holy Spirit, would you change our hearts and minds that we would know you, that we would love you. And only then can we live for you. Lord, so if there's conviction in the room, Lord, if there are, things in our lives that need to change. God, I pray that you would bring that about with just a move of of your spirit, applying grace to our lives and causing us to overflow in gratitude. That's what we want. Lord, so would you work and do what only you can do? And Lord, I pray that you would help us not to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. So Lord, if there's something that you've poked or prompted today, Lord, so many times we're capable of walking away and forgetting looking in the mirror and then forgetting what we've seen. Uh, Lord, I pray that, that by your spirit, you would cause us not to forget, cause us not to be inactive, but Lord, that you would work and move, that we would be changed, that we would look more like your son today than we did yesterday, and then more like your son tomorrow than we do today. God, that the world would see you in us and that you would receive the praises of the peoples. This is our story. Let this be our story. Let this be our song praising our Savior all the day long. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?